0: Let's pray and uh, we'll get started. Father, we thank you that this is the day that you have made. We pray that we would rejoice and be glad in the rest that you bring us through Jesus Christ. Pray that we would rejoice uh, before him, that we would celebrate the Lord Jesus and his work, and his death and resurrection, and his ascension, and his pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. Pray that we would, um, that your spirit be present among us, and that we would. Behold wonderful things out of your law, that we would see even the face of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith uh, through your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're at the very last class, and we're going to wrap everything up, and we're finally going to get to all the pieces that are in the description of the class. Um, I've, uh, no one's accused me of false advertising yet, but you, you probably could have, uh, Uh, You'd only listened to the class up till last week and then read the description of what I said we would talk about. So here's the description of the class. Uh, Dominion and faith, uh, kingdom living under King Jesus, humanity was created to rule the world with God, but we sinned in Adam and toil under the curse. Now, by God's grace, we will reign with God under King Jesus as restored humanity. Join us as we explain and explore the meaning of the dominion mandate in Jesus. Check. We talked about that. How the mandate was impacted by the fall. We've talked about that. Restored in the covenant of grace. Haven't talked about covenant of grace as much, but it's been in your handouts. We've talked about that through uh, uh, Noah, and then we've talked about it with Abraham. But finds full expression in the Great Commission and helps us understand who we were made to be and yet will become in Jesus' kingdom. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Great Commission. Jesus' kingdom, and really, we're just completing the story. Um, This story that we've been telling, creation, fall, redemption, we've seen it pictured in the Old Testament. We've seen uh, every piece of this creation, fall, redemption worked out in the life of, of Adam and Eve. We've seen it in Noah. We've seen it in Abraham. and We saw it a little bit in King David on Mount Moriah, and Christ steps into this story, and he fulfills it. He, he is the fulfillment of everything we've been talking about, um, not just in a, uh, you know, we've talked about fulfilled, like there's some clear prophecies that we know and can cite, you know, Christ will be born of a virgin, his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, um, he'll be born in Bethlehem, Uh these, these kinds of kind of on-the-surface prophecies of Jesus that Christ clearly fulfills, and often that the writers of the Gospels are very explicit about Christ fulfilling. But Christ doesn't just fulfill these kind of one-off prophecies, although he does do that. He fulfills the entire story. The entire story is, uh, that we've been talking about, and the entire story of the Old Testament, uh, is the story of Jesus in his actual historical life, And the story that he is telling is the inauguration of the image of God fully restored, the image of God fully revealed, the image of God in all of its glory fully applied, which is nothing less than the true vocation that man was supposed to have from the beginning. Priest kings in God's presence ruling over the whole world. That's the vocation that Christ steps into as he takes upon humanity, and that's the story that he fulfills. And then, he not only does that in himself, and we not only believe that he did that, but he then invites us to step into his story with him. And so, this narrative arc that we've talked about, um, which I'm losing space on my, my whiteboard, but this you know, creation, fall, and then this redemption, is the narrative of the Bible But it's also the narrative of Christ's life. But here's the wonder of wonders. It's also the narrative of your life if you are in Christ. And it's the narrative of the entire world uh, in Christ and as his people then spread the good news of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished in the gospel. And the Great Commission then uh, comes to us as a new dominion mandate. We've got a handout that I handed you guys. Uh, this uh, algorithm here, uh, or, or matrix, uh, where we've talked about uh, the dominion mandate in Adam, dominion mandate as it's renewed under grace in the Noah's uh, story, and we, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, these same promises come to us uh, in fuller and more and clearer form in the life of Abraham. But then Christ steps into these very promises and renews them, and, and then applies them not just to Abraham's family, but the entire world, which is really what the promise to Abraham was. It was he was to be a blessing for the whole nation. So we're going to talk about all these things today and hopefully uh, wrap up and, and see it all come together. And so we're going to talk about kingdom too. And kingdom there's as many definitions of kingdom you know, these days as there are Christians probably. What is the kingdom? You, know, you, you step into the Middle Ages, there's, there's an answer to that. You step into a Roman Catholic church, they have an answer to that. You step into our own church, 2RP. You know, in the last 60 years of our life, we've talked about kingdom a lot. Uh, what, what is the kingdom? What, what's going on here? And uh, we're going to answer that question because it's really the same question of, of what's Christ's life all about. And I just As you step into this class for the next 45 minutes we talk about kingdom, um, just try to, try to put aside and think of it afresh. Put aside your previous notions of it and just think about these questions, four questions. What's the kingdom? What did Jesus do? How did he do it? What's Jesus doing now and how is he doing it? Okay, what did he do and how did he do it? What's he doing now and how is he doing it? If you, if you know the answers to those questions, you are well on your way to understanding what the kingdom is and what Christ calls you to do now in this life. Uh, so, what did Jesus do? Uh, as we've talked about um, uh, this class, we've kind of defined, going back to your chart, uh, what the image of God is and how it's applied. And we had these, these five categories Uh, The image of God applied looks like glory and honor. It looks like having potential and and then walking in the power of fulfilling your potential. It looks like responsibility, taking God's call and fulfilling it, walking under his law. It looks like communion with God and communion with your fellow man. And it looks like uh, being home and then moving from home to make the rest of the world your home. And so when Christ, what did he do? Fundamentally, he came as the second Adam. He came as the image of God. He came as uh, the ultimate uh, priest king who lived before the face of God and out of that communion went out into the world and exercised power and dominion. And that, that, was, that was what he did and demonstrated in his, his life. His miracles, his, his parables, uh, his ministry, His work among people before he went to the cross was a demonstration of of the God-man, not just God, right? But the God-man, the man who who had complete dominion over all the elements. He can calm the waves and the seas, complete dominion over the spiritual realm. He can cast out demons. And complete dominion over our bodies. He can heal diseases, Um, we are used to talking about Christ's miracles as a proof of his divinity. And in one sense, I, that's, that's certainly true. Um, but let's not miss the fact that Jesus did all these miracles as a man. As a man. Elijah did miracles. Elisha did miracles. And yet the conclusion we draw from their miracles is not, oh, Elisha is God. Or Elijah is God. No, no, no. Like, They're clothed with power. They're doing these things as men, demonstrating the power of God. Christ does these these miracles as a man just as well. And the proof of what he's doing is not so much that he's he's just God walking around, although he is that, but he's the God-man. He's the second Adam walking around in complete dominion and complete power and demonstrating that power and authority. So... When you see Christ casting out demons, he's taking back territory that Satan had conquered. He's taking it back. When he's casting out uh, sickness and disease, he's pushing back the curse. When he's calming the waves of the sea, he is exercising the role that Adam was supposed to exercise as the king of creation and the one who was to go and, and have dominion over everything. And so don't miss that when you see the miracles, you're not just seeing God, you're seeing the God man. And now, why do we. Yeah, what's your question? Something we often talk about between Christ and Elijah and Elijah and others who are doing miracles, right? Moses. There's a
1: difference between those who, as men, were doing miracles, they were calling on the power of the king. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, although I I, I would say, I think we get tripped up on this question of, you know, is Jesus, what's going on with the miracles? And the Enlightenment, this this movement in the uh, 1700s or 1600s through the 1800s, um, they want to separate the spiritual from the material. They, They want to reduce the world and our study of it to only what we can understand with our reason. And because human reason and our empirical methods cannot, by definition, measure the spiritual and immaterial, we're just going to separate these things. And we're going to only look at the material. And and that's going to be how we rule the world and understand the world. And so when we come to the Bible and we see these supernatural things, well, you can't apply empirical methods to Christ's miracles. You know? I mean, and that's why Thomas Jefferson cut out Uh, the miracles from his Bible. He was a deist. He was a true product of the Enlightenment. And so there was no place for miracles. And so Christianity, in the midst of the Enlightenment, um, had the burden of proving to a skeptical world, no, these things really happened. One. And two, Jesus was really divine. He was really God. And that was an important question. And that was an important project. And we shouldn't ever put that aside. But, It's unfortunate because in our preoccupation to prove Christ's divinity, I think we've missed a part of this story, which is not just that Christ is God, but that he is the second Adam. He is fully man, and he's doing all these things, not merely as a proof of his divinity, but as proof that he has come to conquer Satan, to fulfill the role that Adam should have fulfilled, and to bring true the, the true kingdom in, into the world. Does that make sense? You get what I'm saying? Yeah. In what you're saying, it's not until the seventeenth century that we have this understanding of the miracles are the primarily for the sake of emphasizes deity Christ deity. And the entire sixteen hundred years prior to the biblical interpretation, that's not seen as the reason miracles. So you're right, it is an enlightenment reaction. Yeah. Direction alignment, right, right. And it was a necessary one. We, we, had to, we had to establish Christ's divinity against the skeptics. I'm not taking it away from that. But let's not let the heretics define the truth, right? <laughs> let's, let's refute the heretics, and then let's get back on uh, the path that the Bible uh, charts for us. So, I'll have to say, Christ comes. He comes and he fulfills all of these, uh, you know, again, you can take or leave these five categories I've defined. They're helpful for me to understand what image of God applied looks like. So when Christ comes, his glory is veiled in terms of what the eye can see. But it is there, and he shows it to a few people. In the transfiguration, we see glory, right? And he reveals it. He kind of puts aside the, the cocoon of his, of his humiliation very temporarily. And the disciples see uh, the glory and splendor of who he is uh, in an unvarnished uh, Complete sense. And then, uh, so glory has returned to humanity in Jesus Christ. Power has returned to humanity in Jesus Christ. Again, casting out demons, healing the sick, restoring the full potential of human power in himself. He assumes ultimate responsibility to bear the sin of the world, but he also reaffirms the law and the moral uh, rectitude of God. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. He articulates. God's way, he, he affirms it, and he embodies it, and he lives out the responsibility and the obedience that we should have fulfilled, and then he does all these things, as I said earlier, out of his communion with God, right? He's praying all the time. Christ is always waking up really early, going to desolate places, and praying, because everything he's doing, he's doing it as a man, as well as as God, and as a man, he can't do anything except what he does through God and in God, and so don't just see God or Jesus as just well, he's God, so he just does the things God does and it's no he's as a man and as, as a man, a true man who, who man was supposed to be, what Adam was supposed to be, was living in and through God and out of that communion, doing the works that men were supposed to do and then home, how does, how does Christ kind of reaffirm home. Well, Christ is home. Christ is the temple. Christ is the place where heaven and earth meet. And one, one story um, that captures, starts to capture this, and then the gospel writers continue to develop this theme, um, is the story of Christ healing the paralytic. If you remember the story, the first thing Christ says to the paralytic does not have to do with the paralytic's disability. Do you guys remember what Christ says to the paralytic? What does he say? Your sins are forgiven. What's that have to do with the need for healing? Well, where are sins forgiven? Where do you have sins absolved in the Old Testament? Where do you go? The priest. And where's the priest? In the temple. So Christ is saying, I have authority to forgive sins. I'm a priest, and I'm not in the temple, but you're receiving forgiveness. What's the implication? Christ is saying, I'm the temple. I'm the place where forgiveness comes from. I'm, I'm the true uh, fulfillment of this whole system that was designed to cleanse you of your sin and make you holy to God. That's all coming through me now, and that's why the Pharisees are so offended. And that's why um, you know, Stephen, when he's stoned, he tells Bible stories and then gets stoned. Why are they mad at him? What's the accusation against Stephen? You read the book of Acts, the accusation of he's speaking against the temple. He's saying, we don't... That, that was the apostles' early... One of the key points they were making to their Jewish brethren was, we don't need the temple anymore. Jesus is the temple. And that's Stephen's speech. He says, narrates the history, leads up to David, and, and says... You know, Solomon and David declared, you know, we're going to build a temple, but God can't dwell in a temple. You know, and, and Stephen also says a, a prophet like Moses is going to rise up who's greater. Moses is the one who gave the ceremonies that were to be done in the temple. And so he was stoned for saying Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. Christ is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system that gives forgiveness. And that was the scandal. They don't want to hear that. And so Christ then... oh. Just, He's home. He's the temple. He's the place where heaven and earth overlap. And so, that's what he does. Now, uh, we'll try to make this more interactive here. I've been I've been lecturing for a little bit, and this is this is where I think think we get confused because we see Christ coming in power, and we see our own lives, and we see our own shame and powerlessness and guilt and alienation and exile. And we see Christ coming, and he comes, and he's not here anymore. And we're still here in this sinful world, and we're left with the question, well, where's the power now? Where's the glory now? Where's, where's home now? I, I still feel like I'm in exile. And so that confusion is actually the same confusion the early disciples felt and why were they confused? Why were the disciples confused about where the trajectory of Jesus' life was going? They saw the power. They saw the glory. But then, like, you know, halfway through the Gospels, there's a shift. The disciples get confused. Stuff starts happening. They start to scatter. What is it about Jesus' story that's a stumbling block for the disciples early on that I think is also our stumbling block? Suffering. Suffering. Messiah had to suffer. Whoa, okay, what, that's, again, what did Jesus do? How did he do it? And this, this motif of dominion through suffering is at the heart of Christianity and the Bible. This is what makes our religion the only true religion and that every other religion does not embrace and doesn't get. Other religions have a theory of death, They have a theory of conquest. They have a theory of being right with God. But Christianity is the only religion that says true dominion comes out of death. True resurrection power, true life comes through the way of ultimate shame and suffering. And that's the trajectory that Christ charts and starts to go to, sets his mind to go to Jerusalem. And the disciples, they're puzzled. They're they're trying to read these same prophecies that we've been talking about in the past eleven weeks, and then they see it fulfilled in this suffering Savior, who's if he's a king in power, casting out demons and ruling over creation and forgiving sins, why is he executed? In a way that symbolizes to a whole Roman world, you're the scum of the earth, we own you, no one should ever follow you ever again. Like, how, how do those things go together? And that's, that's, Christians have been figuring that out for 2,000 years. And we're going to talk about that today. Before we get to how, what's going on there, what we do know. And the apostles' starting point for starting to understand all this was the objective fact that whatever Christ was up to, what's the result of Christ's work? After he suffered, what happened? He died. He died. And then what, after, what happened after he died? Resurrected. Resurrected. He rose again. So, again, don't make it too complicated. Whatever happened to Jesus was not enough to keep him dead. Like Christianity is that simple. Christianity what Jesus did solves the death problem. It's that's that's it's literally not more complicated than that. Like how do you escape death? How do you conquer death? How do you conquer this whole messed up world? Whatever Jesus was up to that's how you do it. It's that simple. So the whole world roamed through what it could at him, roamed through the worst kind of death they could throw at a a political prisoner. The Jewish people threw the worst things they could throw at a disgraced prophet, a disgraced teacher. Cursed is one who hangs on a tree. You know, all the curses of the Old Testament, we are going to put on you, Jesus, say the Pharisees and the high priests, right? And Satan, the worst he could do, you know, Causing the Son of God to suffer excruciating pain and causing the Son of God to experience the wrath of God Himself, like through all of that, Christ emerges victorious. Like that's that's Christianity. That's the gospel. And so the paradox is: How does life come out of death? And in one sense, you know, we can't answer that question. We've been trying to. I think many times Christians. Um, theologians, we try to answer these metaphysical questions, and they're, they're wonderful to answer, and we should answer them, like, metaphysically, like, mechanically, how are things happening? Um, we, we should do that. But, that's hard. It takes a lot of time and study, and let's not forget the fact that the Bible comes to us with these four Gospels. It comes to us, God comes to us with these letters of the Apostles, and they simply just tell the story. More often than not, they just tell the story. And they tell us to reenact that story in our baptism, entering into death, rising again, in the Lord's Supper, ingesting, taking in Christ's death and proclaiming his death until he comes. And so, again, that's why story, this narrative is is how I've tried to structure this class and bring us into that just appreciate the glory of the story of Jesus. And so, The story is, Jesus came as a second Adam, fulfilled the vocation of humanity. He did that through his death and suffering that produced ultimate life. And as a result of that, he's taken what happened after he rose again. He then ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. What's what's the significance of that? That's fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's vision, saying, I saw one like the Son of Man, standing before the ancient of days and seated at the right hand of God. And so Christ is saying, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. I have taken my place as the rightful heir of humanity and I have assumed the command post, if you will, of all of creation. And that's the meaning of the ascension. Christ assumes and accepts the honor and glory of the work he has accomplished and now rules the entire world as the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7. And then what happens after that? This is where we enter the picture. After Christ ascends, what does he promise to do 10 days later? Send the Holy Spirit. He bestows his power and his glory onto his people and rules all of creation in building this new kingdom in and through the power of the Holy Spirit that he pours out upon his church. And so his work continues as he executes his holy office before the throne of God in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's redemption. And that's where we then, we enter into his story. And so we assume the dominion that he accomplished, and we assume the role that he fulfilled as his people. But it looks like his life, and it looks like the same story of creation. We're born again. We're made new. We're regenerated. It looks like fall. We then enter into Christ's sufferings, persecuted by the world, struggling against sin, breaking off with evil in our lives so that we can experience the life of Christ in and through us, and so that's what I want to start with today. That that us stepping into Christ's story is us fulfilling the dominion mandate in our true vocation. Us stepping into Christ's story is us fulfilling the dominion mandate in our true vocation as priests and kings before God. So to do that, we're going to walk through uh, some verses up here. We're going to start with Matthew five. We're going to read the Beatitudes. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. The Beatitudes. We've talked in this class about um, this dominion mandate and how it's articulated in the Old Testament. And you see in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, how does God's what's the preface to the, the mandates? It's a blessing. God blessed all of creation. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Same thing happens in Noah, in the recreation In Noah. Humanity and the animals leave the ark. Noah offers a sacrifice on Mount Ararat. God is pleased with the sacrifice. He then blesses humanity again and reaffirms, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Same thing with Abraham. God comes to Abraham and says, I will bless you. Right? The same thing's happening in Jesus. Jesus is stepping into this pattern and he's bringing deeper clarity into what is this blessing, and and the, the the beatitudes capture. I don't say capture; it's a strong word. They they they're at least uh, playing in the same key, playing the same tune of this dominion through suffering. So let's read it together, and let's see if we see that. Okay, let's see what the nature of who are the ones who are blessed, and what's the nature of their blessing in this life. Uh, wants to read uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11? Go for it, Eric. So, what's, um how would you summarize those who who are blessed? What is what's what is their position in this world? They'll try to get something. They're mourning, but they'll be comforted. Right. They're hungry for righteousness, but they haven't filled yet, so they're kind of needy. They're needy. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a discrepancy described here. There's, there's a mismatch, in one sense, between their desires, between their condition, between their, their hopes, um, and also a, a discrepancy between how they're received by the rest of the world. Right? There's a contrast between what they long for and what they're doing and what the world is currently offering. Um, more could be said. I mean, this is there's so much here. Um, but using some things we talked about in this class, when you see the fallen nature of the world and you see the brokenness of it, we've talked about one way you can deal with that. It's the wrong way, and we've talked about fake dominion, right? And so think about the Beatitudes in contrast to the fake dominion project. Again, the fake dominion project is epitomized in building the tower of Babel. We're gonna build a name for ourselves. We're lowly, we're humble, well, we're gonna rise up, right? We're gonna, we're gonna use our ingenuity and our creativity and our reason, and we're gonna build a tower, we're gonna ascend to the heavens and make a name and glory for ourselves, right? Is the is what's described by the blessed ones and the Beatitudes, consistent or inconsistent with the fake dominion project. Fundamentally inconsistent. Right. And so what, what God is saying, what Jesus is saying here is, is there's a way back to a renewed humanity. There's a way out of the fall. And it's not through the fake dominion project. It's not through the pride of men, right? It's not through the rich and the wealthy who have all the means of the world at their disposal. It's not through the violent and those who take things by force. No, it's it's with the peacemakers. It's with the merciful. It's with the meek. It's with those who mourn. And that that's just a beautiful... I mean, that to, to anyone who is dissatisfied with this world and feels at their core of their being that who they are is fundamentally broken and messed up and not what they're supposed to be. Like These verses of blessing affirm that your dissatisfaction with this present world is the right response. But beyond that, <laughs> But, but the Tower of Babel builders had the same response. They were dissatisfied with the world, too, right? So just being mad at the world and mad at your condition is not enough. <laughs> a lot of angry people in the world who hate their current condition, who want it to be fixed, who are not going to receive the blessing. So it's not just dissatisfaction, but it's dissatisfaction in a posture of recognizing the need for rescue. The need for someone to step in and bring you out of this cursed condition—not something you lay hold of yourself, but someone to rescue you. Yes. Yes, that's that's a great way to say what I'm what I'm trying to describe, and we're, we're groping at words here. But it's it's this it's this dissatisfaction, but it's it's not a dissatisfaction that then rises up in defiance. That was Cain. Cain was dissatisfied, and his response was to kill the object that pricked his conscience, namely Abel. I mean, it, it, uh, Nimrod or, or Lamech, you know, he was dissatisfied with the world, so he just kills people and takes on extra wives and just lives for the pleasures of the world. But no, right? It's this humility, it's this poverty of spirit, it's this brokenness, it's this. And so, what's being described here is is a longing for a new kingdom in the midst of a broken world. It's the, 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 Christ is affirming this, 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 the fact that however blessedness is going to come into the world, and Christ is going to explain it as he lives out the rest of his life, and the apostles are going to explain it, whatever's going on, it's going to be something that is in tension with the fake dominion project. And then in one sense in this life looks like it's being conquered by that fake dominion project. But, nevertheless, it will result in true blessedness. So we get a a taste of the the kingdom mindset here. This kingdom is, um, blessedness is going to come a different way. There's a new way of dominion. It's breaking into the world right now. That's the other thing. The blessed are those who experience this right now. Right, You're not waiting for some... Uh, you don't need the resurrection necessarily, bodily, to experience the blessedness Christ is talking about right now. Right, There's real suffering. I'm not mitigating that. But there's a blessedness in knowing that your humble dissatisfaction with the present fallenness of the world uh, is affirmed by God and he cares about you and knows what you're going through and he affirms that if you, that's you, the kingdom of heaven is yours. The kingdom is yours. Um, so this also anticipates the way of the cross, um, that that this humble dissatisfaction uh, models an attitude of one under-suffering, of one in-suffering. And this is the model that Christ demonstrates in his uh, body and in his life. So turn to Philippians 2. Let's turn to Philippians 2. Because um, this is describing the mind that God's people are to have, which is also the mind of Christ, which I'd argue is also the disposition that's described in the Beatitudes. So what's the disposition of the Beatitudes applied to the church and demonstrated in Christ's life? What is the pattern of life that follows from this mindset? This blessed mindset in this age, what does it look like lived out? Philippians 2, chapter Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Who wants to read that? Go for it, Dave. Amen. And so what does this mindset this 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 kingdom mindset this mindset of true blessedness what does it look like lived out in Jesus life based on what Paul tells us in chapter 2 of Philippians Obedience and humility how What's what are the actions that Christ takes to fulfill that obedience and humility? He takes the form of a servant, takes the form of a servant or a slave. Let's just go the actual Greek word, doulos, right? Lowest position, right? Not just the form of a servant. Where does how does does he go even deeper than that? Takes the form of a servant and what? Born like us a men. And then not just any man, even a dead man. Not just any dead man, but how does he die? On a cross. A political propaganda by the Roman emperor that says, this guy is a loser. That's what the cross means. This guy is a loser. This guy is a laughingstock. I mean, um, there's a book written by uh, this, this non-Christian guy named Tom Holland called Dominion, and it's a story of the history of Christianity, and you should, I think you can go on Amazon and read the Kindle introduction, you get a free sample of it, but that introduction is worth the price of the book because we are so far removed from public executions in our day, you know, we, we don't see people publicly shamed, um, we see people Twitter mobbed, you know, <laughs> We see people in like mild forms of emotional kind of abuse um, on the internet. But we, we don't see public executions. Um, not to mention public torture. Um, not to mention public torture that's like on a highway uh, with a naked man bloodied and hanging there for you know six to nine hours. I mean, it's just, we're so removed from the horror and shame of the cross. And so... Have this mind in you that was in Christ. How does Christ bring his kingdom into the world? How is he conquering? It's this. It's the most extreme humiliation that you can imagine. And that's the scandal of it. The scandal of it. That, that was why Christianity was so new and off the charts in the Roman world. Was What? You're going to take the, the image of, the mo- of humiliation and make it the image of exaltation? What? You guys are crazy. And yet, Paul says, this is the power of God. right? This is what puts the world to shame. Because you can do the worst to Christ that humans can devise, and he still <laughs> rises from the dead. And that's the answer is, OK, fine. Have your Caesars risen from the dead? You know, has any other political prisoner who's been crucified risen from the dead? Are you, are you going to rise from the dead when you, Caesar, you and your pomp, and you, Herod, and your pomp and glory, and you, Pharisees, and your, your pride and your hypocrisy, are you going to rise from the dead? Can you do that? Can you take your own life up? That's, that's, that's the comeback, and it's the ultimate comeback. Okay, so that's what Jesus did. That's the mind he had. And now, where does Paul go with that? How do we take this mind upon ourselves? Now, we have these, these, these attributes that we should aspire to, right? And we should um, seek to cultivate these virtues, but what's the context of our cultivating the virtues? Right? What's it feel like? What's it, wh- where do we do it? And that's where Philippians 3, 9 through 11 comes in. Again, Paul's building on this idea of what does humility look like lived out? What's it mean to be in Christ? Paul says, starting in uh, Philippians 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul is saying, my life I'm trying to model off of Christ's humility. Christ lay aside all things. Paul says, I've lost all things and I count them as rubbish. So that I can be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I want to gain all the glory and righteousness that Christ had in his exaltation, right? I'm going to to, to humble myself and take the form that Christ assumed in my own life so that I can gain by faith the righteousness that Christ accomplished on the cross, And and he elaborates on what that looks like in verse 10. What's what's this going to mean for Paul? What's it going to look like? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the Christian life for Paul is to live out the narrative of Jesus' life in his own body. Not so he can earn his own salvation. This isn't isn't about earning your salvation. This isn't about justification by your own suffering. This is you agreeing with Jesus that the path he trod is the only way to eternal life and that you want to follow Jesus in that path so you can achieve the same end that Christ achieved. It's that simple. Jesus conquered death. Do you want to conquer death? Do what Jesus did. Live the life that he, he lived. This is the imitation of Christ. This is this is walking by the spirit. This is again not earning your salvation. This is the kingdom life. That's promised blessing in the beatitudes. Yes. Yes. He is true wisdom. This is, this is true wisdom come from God. And if you reject it, you're a fool. <laughs> exactly. Yes, Dave. I'm just taking off the same just I keep thinking about how significant it is that we get the
1: Holy Spirit. hmm. Yes. So because of
0: the voice variable we're doing in the Right. And, and everything that we need Right. You know, and to us. And right. not just in a technical sense but in a very personal. Right. sense. Right, exactly. No, absolutely right. And that's a great segue to to this um this handout I hear um there have some quotes for you. And these are all quotes from the book The j Curve. And a lot of what I've said the past 10 minutes is is coming from this book, J-Curve. You know, we must, and this is what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. Talk about what the, we need the Holy Spirit to live this life. What's the Holy Spirit empowering us to do? Not just believe these facts as true, though they are, but to live them and embody them. So, you got this handout. Skip to the one at the bottom, because I'm going to start with Augustine. Because Augustine captures this in his Confessions. He says... And it's this contrast between just appreciating the story and you being an observer of the story and then you stepping into the story yourself. So Augustine, the bottom of your page, you know, faith receives God's truth, not just as an object of belief, faith, but a realm to live in, love. We'll get to faith and love in just a second. Augustine describes the need to, quote, discern and distinguish the difference between presumption and confession between those who see what the goal is, but not how to get there, and those who see the way which leads to the home of bliss, not merely as an end to be perceived, but a realm to live in. Right? When we read the stories of Jesus, when we read the Bible, we're not just seeing a nice video and story of the end of the world, although we are seeing that. (laughs) But it's, it's an invitation to make that story our own, the way Paul has described, sharing his sufferings uh, so that we might share his resurrection life, and that is what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. So going back to the J-curve quotes, I won't read all of these, but um, I'll read the first one and the last one. So, the first one. Our identity, justification by faith, and the shape of our life, the J-curve, the J-curve now is just... Uh, It's Paul Miller's way of saying your participation in the narrative of Jesus' life. J-curve is this creation, fall, redemption, creation, uh, death, resurrection motif. So the shape of our life, the J-curve, are embedded with union with Christ. That's what Dave was saying. In Philippians 3, 10-11, Paul first experiences a faith union with Christ. He believes in Christ. He believes that his story is the true story. But then in the J-curve, that is his imitation of Christ's story, he experiences a present union as he reenacts the story of Jesus dying and rising in everyday life. The J curve, again, our reenactment of Jesus' story, makes union with Christ come alive. It's not just an idea we believe, but a present reality. Right. And so this last quote here, already not yet. We've talked about this principle a little bit, you know, the already not yet nature of, of Christ's kingdom. Um, Already, not yet, applies to every aspect of the J-curve. We've already died with Christ in the past, but because of the ever-present flesh, we are not yet, we've not yet died to the power of sin. In Christ, we are already resurrected, but until Jesus returns, we're not yet fully resurrected. But already, not yet, can miss the present. Paul repeatedly emphasizes our present participation in the dying and rising of Jesus. A richer summary of Paul's thinking is already, not yet, and right now. Right now. Right now. And that's what the Beatitudes are getting at. Right now, if you are poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Right now. And it will become more full in the future, but, right, but you do have the kingdom right now. If you mourn, you do experience Christ's comfort even now, even as you anticipate a greater comfort. If you are meek and humble, you inherit the earth, one person at a time, right? One life at a time, one project at a time, done in Jesus' name. And the, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the end of it, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What's that mean? The meek will inherit the earth. If you are laboring in the Lord, there is a sense of, in which what you're doing for Jesus will endure to the end, right? Your 401k may not endure to the end, right? Your house may not endure, but the works of righteousness and love that you do in Jesus' name are real. They're real and they matter. They matter. Yes?
1: And unreality that is not there but it's it's like a captivated movie script. It's not real, but we are all Mm -hmm. so consumed by this falsehood and have to fight against it all the time. And so though that is clear, the advantage is unmistakable, but the
0: Yes. Right. Yeah. It's it's a it's a real morass. I mean, we we live in a world of great peril. I mean, the the obfuscation that Satan still clouds over this story and over our lives is real. And and this is where turn the page over. Um, we'll, we'll sort of start to end with this. These uh, faith apart from works is useless. Only faith working through love. And I, I give you these verses, you can, or these verses, these uh, quotations, because this starts to capture the drama that you are to embody in your own life in taking dominion. There is a battle for you to fight every day at, now that you are living Jesus' life, now that you understand that resurrection comes through suffering. And what does that lead you into? It leads you into a direct encounter with evil. At every moment, you have a choice. Are you going to oppose evil, or are you going to let evil dictate what you're going to do? And you see that in in evil outside of you, so evil people that you need to deal with and work with, and using Christ's means and love. But you got to you got to enter into the evil and deal with it. Enter into the evil of the fallen world. Like right? there's sickness around you. You got people to take care of. You got all of that confrontation with evil invites you into a suffering. There's evil in your own heart that you need to say no to, and kill. That's a type of suffering. It hurts to kill your own sin, to feel the the loss of of the things you used to delight in. You've got to put it away. And then the evil you have to confront that just sits over you. Chronic pain, broken relationships, right? And these verses capture this drama that you're entering into, which is the drama of Christ's suffering and resurrection. So I'll just read the first part. The beginning of a new life is followed by a battle, a battle against sin. And in that battle, as is not the case with the beginning of it, the Christian does cooperate with God. He is helped by God's spirit, but he himself, not only God's spirit in him, is active in the fight. Um, the last sentence of this section, The faith of which we have been speaking consists not in doing something, but in receiving something. But it is followed every time by a life in which great things are done. So this suffering that we're entering into is an active suffering that comes with an active engagement with evil all around us. And in that engagement, which is just love, it's love. It's, it's fulfilling God's law in every aspect of life. It's fulfilling it in taking people's burdens upon you. It's fulfilling it in putting away things that are evil. It's fulfilled in putting, uh, killing the evil within yourself. It's all love. The greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor. The whole law is summarized in love, and this, this, con- this battle of love is, is a battle that the Spirit empowers you to fight. It feels like suffering, and its end is life and resurrection in Christ. So, uh, that's it. Uh, I encourage you to read these quotes. I think they'll be encouraging to you. We didn't get to Great Commission, but hopefully uh, it just follows naturally from what we're talking about. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, Christ says. I am the King. Go therefore into all the world, make disciples of every nation. In other words, make them people who embody the story of Jesus, who follow Jesus, who live this life of death and resurrection in Him. Teach them to observe all I've commanded you. Teach them how to love, how to engage the battle of sin around them. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I am your home. I am present with you. Ongoing communion is always with you by my Spirit in you. And so the Great Commission, then, is the new dominion mandate in which we go into the world and extend Christ's kingdom of union with him and imitating him in his suffering and resurrection. So, let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We glorify you, Jesus, for your conquest, for your rescue. As we ponder who you are, I pray that we would follow you, that we would leave everything Sell all our possessions, whether literally or figuratively, that we would die to the world and the world would be crucified to us, that we may gain Christ and become united to him in his death, that we might experience life in him. I pray that those uh, who do not know you in this room would repent and bow the knee to King Jesus and see that he is a a savior who is worthy of their allegiance, worthy of their life, and worthy of even their death. Uh, Go with us in this next hour of worship. I pray that you would. Bless the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to us, that we would participate in his death um, by faith in taking the elements and that we would receive grace as we remember, remember his death and his resurrection. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.